U.S. houses 25% of the entire world's prison population. But like when, yeah, if you're cutting costs, if you're creating these environments that don't seem to be following that mission, how are we supposed to take that? What they're doing could cost half as much as what they're saying, but we wouldn't know it. Like, that's the whole reason for transparency. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Social Discord, episode 18, For-Profit or Not-For-Profit, Private Prisons in America. I'm your host, Dalen Turk. I'm Kara Thibault. And I'm Curtis Medina. Now, before we get going into today's episode, we do have a little bit of housekeeping. Um, we did say that we were going to have an episode on the 8th, but uh, due to the things that took place on January 6th, um, that's when we were supposed to record, we decided to take that day off, put it off another week because we were all kind of focused on America at that moment and what was going on. Well- Honestly, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get through the podcast without cursing a lot. And I didn't know if that many F-bombs could be dropped in a single episode without getting like blocked. Yeah, we, we might have had to uh, flag that episode for certain reasons. <laughs> so that is why we weren't uh, with a new episode on the 8th. Um, another thing, too, we had a listener reach out and uh, they expressed some concern about an episode that we did. It was the... Um, Guide Through Social Discord episode. I was at episode 15, I think it was. And uh, in the episode, I guess we said, uh, we referenced uh, Congressman Ben Sass as a moderate. And um, we will address that actually in a later episode that kind of stemmed the whole idea of doing uh, political relativeness. Um, and I think in that episode, we more referenced him as a moderate in terms of his stance and the way he spoke out against Trump, unlike many other Republicans who did not. So it definitely made Ben Sass seem like more of a moderate. Um, so I just wanted to address that really fast. Um, but like I said, we'll get into that into another episode about political relativeness later on. Um, but with that, uh, why don't we dive into today's episode? And like I said, for profit or not for profit, private prisons in America. So Kara, why don't you take us off? Thanks, Dalen. So before we start this episode, I did want to start with a disclaimer. What we're going to be talking about today is a very large, complex, and complicated topic, and we really hope we do it justice in the short time we have, and we definitely welcome any comments we have from listeners. All right, guys, let's get into it. So I want to do a little exercise first. Dalen, you did a bad thing. You stole Uh my... (laughs) I know. You know what you did. You stole my limited edition Harry Potter set and my custom-made one. And you're never getting it back. (laughs) And it means a lot to me. You know that. So, unfortunately, you are going to go have to spend some time in my jail. Well, I don't really have the time or resources to deal with it, though. So, Curtis, I'm going to actually hire you and give you $20 a day to deal with Daylin. All right? So, that's hell yeah. (laughs) I know we're all looking for jobs right now. So that money is going to pay for his food, his medical, housing, recreation, clothes, etc. You can go ahead and use the whole $20 if you'd like, or you can pocket whatever extra you save, depending on how you use the money. After all, you know, I am paying you to do this. So Dalen, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the form of justice we're using? I mean, it doesn't sound particularly fair or transparent. (laughs) You know, I feel like if that's that money is allotted to, you know, take care of me and my incarceration. I feel like that's kind of where it should go to. Okay. Okay. And Curtis, do you think you're going to spend the $20 every day on Daylin? Or do you think you'll try to budget so you can keep some as well for yourself uh, for payment? 
Oh, I think I'm going to do perfectly like the right thing is just as long as there's no transparency and, and uh, as long as you don't check on where I'm actually spending the money, I think it all look great. Perfect. <laughs> so we're going to find a very skinny, unhealthy dilemma at the end of this. We have loosely just described the private prison system in America. Yeah, that's um, that's a lot. And we're we're joking about it. And, you know, we're laughing, but it's. This is going to be a really dense topic that we're diving into, and there is a lot surrounding it. Um, but as usual, let's go into some primers before we get into the real brunt of the episode. Number one, what does private prison mean? Private prisons and for-profit prisons are synonymous with each other. They're the same thing. Unlike public prisons run by the government, private prisons are run by third-party companies and are actually funded through contracts with the government. So just like Kara said... They are giving these companies, these private companies, money to incarcerate people. So how long have private prisons been around? Well, variations of private prisons go back as far as 1852 San Quentin, the first for-profit prison in the United States, which is now state-owned. Over the next 128 years, public-run prisons were the norm. The only privatized parts were some services within the prisons, but the overall management was still state and federally run. 1980 was the year privatization of prisons took off, starting in Tennessee, with the first private prison company, Corrections Corporation of America, which is also known as CCA and now known as CoreCivic. Okay, and uh, number three, we're gonna we're basically going to be having a debate about um, the idea of private prisons versus public prisons. Um, I, I do want to always say that you know I want to make sure that. Uh, if you're conservative, you are listening, even even if you are, you know, totally for private prisons, we want you to listen too. We're really going to debate about it on this show. Um, and basically the debates are three different things. The, the core of the controversy is cost, quality, um, and the morality of um, privatizing uh, the prisons. We'll get into this more in depth, but there are arguments that private prisons actually save money. Um, though they're often plagued with ambiguous accounting records, um, very ambiguous, and actually, <laughs> and actually almost non-existent. Um, and actually, most studies show that the cost savings are either negligible or not worth the deficiencies. Uh, there have been numerous reports and investigations that show poor quality in the prisons, often regarded as both the cause and result of the cheaper operations. The moral issue, though, lies within the capitalization of imprisonment, shifting the focus away from justice and pointing it toward high occupancy for profit. So uh, what we're aiming to do with this is give a brief history of prisons in America. Certainly not everything, but I think enough to give us some context. In 1829, the first modern prison opened in Philadelphia. And in the early 1800s, prisons were meant as a place to reflect on your crime or as a debtor's prison where you would stay until you could pay back your debt. By the mid-1800s, convict leasing began. So the government would allow private individuals or corporations to lease out convicts. Unsurprisingly, as you guys can imagine, this typically involved black men. Uh, it was essentially a form of slavery, and it was these men being exploited, and their prison sentence was often extended to finish out their lease. Oh, that's begin. awful. Yeah. yeah so, I, I yeah. wanted to say something about that really quick. Like, you know, one of the things I learned when I was uh, visiting the Smithsonian, um, the African-American Museum there, which is awesome, by the way, it's one of the best museums that they have, um, okay. was one of the facts that I, I was really shocked by was that at first, um, you know, paying off your debts and work, basically being a slave was something that wasn't just for 
African-Americans. It was anybody, uh, any, any poor person, right. you know, and, and it became racial later on um, because people reasoned out with their stupid reasoning that, you know, one person was better than another type of person. But, you know, but this was actually a, a thing that used to affect every race. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and so, you know, just because it happens to somebody that is not like you doesn't mean that it can't happen to you or that it hasn't happened to people like you in the past. I will right. say the uh, the act of basically enslaving somebody through taxes is uh, something known as peonage. Um, and it, it was largely racialized post-slavery because it was just a, a new way for um, landowners to hold their sharecroppers in place was through acts of peonage and was just creating just taxes for no reason, just outrageous prices or, you know, making these fees that are just blatantly not real. Um, but yeah, so that's known as peonage. Interesting. I did not know that. And yeah, like you said, this this practice, it, it came alive after slavery. It was actually the year after slavery ended. So it was, it was another way to kind of keep those practices alive. Um, it was yeah. outlawed in 1928, which wow. was long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So moving on, Andrew Woodrow Wilson in 1914, the first war on drugs began. A lot of people think it started with Reagan. It actually started with Woodrow Wilson way back in the early 1900s. Which is really the, interesting, actually. I know. I, you don't hear that, do you? Reagan mm. gets all the credit, but Mr. Wilson, step up, please. <laughs> well, on. that's about the time that marijuana started becoming like um, oh. illegal, right? That, so, I mean, I wonder if that was a big part of it. I, that really is something you don't think about, though, right? Is the the use of drugs, like, I guess, prior to, I mean, the 50s. Like, you don't really think about that. You know, you hear the jokes of, of doctors yeah. giving patients heroin and cocaine and all this, but you mm-hmm. don't hear about substance abuse other than alcohol really prior to 1950 yeah because yeah, it was like medicinal you're right um so it was interesting that he kind of you know brought that on and then nixon is really the one that drove it home ter- mm-hmm. uh, coining that term war on drugs um all right so in 1955 under eisenhower the in- the institutionalization it's always a tough word for me to say <laughs> of mental hospitals begins which we you know a lot of us know about and again i, I didn't realize that that started with eisenhower um, I, I blamed a lot of Reagan, that for Reagan on Reagan as well. Um, so that meant that a lot of mentally ill folks, they didn't have medical care. And guess what? Jails and prisons, they picked up the slack. So now we're seeing a lot of people who should be in a mental hospital now in prisons. All right. So our population's increasing. In the 60s, crime is skyrocketing. Why? Well, I just mentioned some of it, right? This is due to the fact that there's all these new laws and social contra- constructs creating more situations in which people were considered criminals. So and at the same time, the public discourse is now using explicitly racist language to discuss crime. Mm-hmm. Well, racist and sexist, trend. too. Mm-hmm. You can kind of see this trend going. So then between the 60s and 80s, more money is just pumped into the criminal justice systems, which isn't a bad thing. But a war on crime and drugs just resurges stronger than ever. And these low-level crimes that wouldn't have sent you to jail before are now subject to incarceration. So the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, that is where the minimum prison sentences came from. They also took away, this is really important, judicial discretion. So that means that judges could no longer say, you know, this is what I think it should be. They were mandated to give certain prison mm-hmm. or certain prison sentences per crime. It took and away right, the, the judgment in judge. 
right? Which is a little ironic. Uh, this was under Reagan. So he successfully convinced the American public that illegal drug, drugs are a leading problem. I read a statistic somewhere. I should have wrote it down. It was something like only 2% of Americans before, you know, this big Reagan push thought illegal drugs were a, a big problem in America. And after his campaign, it was upwards of 90% of Americans yeah, were like, I'd... this is biggest problem in america we'll touch on that a little bit um later in, or we'll touch on that more later in the episode but a lot of that was because the red scare was coming to a bit more of a halt mm-hmm. and all of a sudden america kind of needed something to be scared of and it was drugs well and to be fair too i mean their crime was skyrocketing and people mm-hmm. needed something to blame and you know i mean there probably was some kind of connection between rising crime and drug use but oh absolutely but it doesn't necessarily explain the whole thing away and it doesn't no. solve the problem just to be like you take drugs you go into jail now you know like right. that does not you know solve you know racial inequality and and uh you know and and poverty and all that you know all the different things so anyway yeah it was it's always it's always the scapegoat mm-hmm. always the scapegoat so this guys, this this trend continued. Um, in the '90s, prison sentences became harsher and longer. Uh, President Clinton signed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which is the largest crime bill in the history of the country, to the tune of 9.7 billion dollars for prisons. It also banned, and this is something I learned too, and it made me sick to my stomach. It also banned incarcerated people from receiving the Pell Grant for college. I didn't, I didn't know that. Did you guys know that? I Not until I read it. I I knew it. it didn't allow for um, opportunities for um, schooling, but I didn't realize it was the Pell Grant. Yeah, it's really disappointing, um, which means obviously, you know, it makes access to education difficult if you've been to prison. Um, This bill also signed welfare reform, or he signed an additional bill that was welfare reform, which increased obstacles for people with drug felonies to access social safety nets. And it is important, I think, for us to note that many of the cultural and policy shifts we've mentioned specifically targeted people of color and vulnerable populations. Um, We've got the term super predator, which led to a lot of the disparities we see today in the justice system. We, we saw this exact type of thing happen to the queer community as we discussed in trans history of um, trans people not really having access to jobs and whatnot because there were these laws that were created to basically keep them out of a functional form of society. And that's why in situations like this, they keep falling into crime because the bills specifically target them. After 9-11... Police were given more power into intrusive investigations, but there was also steps to reform solitary confinement and give more money under Bush to reform and second chances programs to reduce crimes like property damage to misdemeanors and things like that. Mm-hmm. However, the prison population just continued to grow and more and more people were punished with these minimum sentences, regardless of whether the punishment that the crime So a reduction in the overall federal prison population that began in 2014 uh, ultimately resulted from changes in sentencing policy, although private prison rates did seem to increase. The overall declines in the prison population helped persuade President Obama's Department of Justice to actually start phasing out private for-profit prison contracts. However, in February 2017, under the Trump administration, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced that they would reverse this plan, indicating that the Bureau of Prisons would continue to rely on private prison facilities. He stated that the private prison companies would assist in meeting the future needs of the federal correction system. This policy reversal was followed by a directive to prosecutors to pursue the most serious charges and the toughest sentences in all federal cases. These changes are projected to increase prison admissions and sentence length, which is likely to contribute to an expansion of private facility contracts. 
contracting because, you know, they need more space. Well, you know, it's funny too. Like it's like conservatives are more likely to, you know, think that harsher sentences uh, for drugs or for anything really um, is better. But like at the same time, they also believe in less government, you know? So like, it's a weird contrast there that you can, uh, you know, you can, you can be against big government, but also like before government making it easier to incarcerate you for longer, you know, just because you don't think you're going to be in that situation, but who knows? You don't think it's going to happen to you. I also, I I think though, a lot of Republicans, I think, have this mindset of once you become a criminal, you are no longer a constructive part of society. Therefore, you lose liberties. Therefore, that doesn't like the idea of government over- overreaching to you does not apply to you. And uh, there's the quote here from who is it? Uh, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas. Um said, I agree with Attorney General uh, Sessions, the law enforcement should side with the victims of crime rather than its perpetrators. And I think that's kind of their basis of everything, or at least they try to make their basis of, oh, we're siding with the victims. Which yeah, I mean, a bad, a bad place to come from. I no, just it's not. Huge. Like, that's not a whole thing. I mean, depending, depending on what you're getting put away for and for how long, you might be the victim, though. <laughs> you know, like, right. like that's the problem. You know, it's like, every, you know, when somebody says crime as just a gen- generality, you know, you're always thinking like the worst. You're thinking the murderers, you know, you're thinking mm-hmm. the rapists, you know, but you're not thinking of somebody that, you know, is getting put away for a couple of years because they smoked a joint or something stupid like that. You know, you're not thinking of those situations. Right. Does, does the punishment fit the crime, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we can, there's a whole episode we could do on this, but like you said, I mean, there's a lot of people in prison for marijuana use and there's, you know, I, I, I'm in Colorado right now. I can go get marijuana down the street if I want. So there has to be some discretion there. The discretion is supposed to be partially with the judges that are now, you know, uh, incapable of, of doing any, anything less than the minimum sentencing. It's supposed to be with the the lawyers that you know uh, can choose to do a lesser, uh, or prosecutors who can choose to you know apply a lesser sentence for some something that has a special circumstance, right. um, but which have been told that they have to apply the maximum every time, no matter what. You know, I mean, there's always that. You know, that I'm gonna go really cheesy here. I'm gonna go super liberal with this example. Like, there's always that example where you know is like, is it wrong to steal if you're stealing a loaf of bread for your family? You know, and mm-hmm. it's like, it's like the answer is no, but it is wrong, but it's not exactly. I mean, it's like it's really confusing. Like, you have to kind of debate that, and there is definitely a big difference. Uh, anyone would have to say, you know, when stealing bread for your family versus, you know, robbing a bank or something like right. that, you know, just your greedy reasons or whatever, you know. So, so there is the the law is meant to be a human process. It is not meant to be rubber stamped. And even though it does make our court systems really, really slow sometimes, and, and that's a separate issue, too slow. Um, it is done on purpose, though, because we're supposed to have humans at certain steps that that are like you know what you were wrong but you're not this wrong you're not lifetime sentence wrong there's also an argument that if you do put someone in prison for a very low level offense stealing a loaf of bread for their family or you know smoking a joint do they come out a better person or did we now just create like a really angry member of society the last bullet i kind of wanted to mention here and thanks for hanging in there with me for our short little history lesson um is just a quick fact so today the u.s house's 
25% of the entire world's prison population with nearly that's that's a lot that's guys that's insane that's, that's nearly 2.3 million people in prison and you compare that to the 70s it was about 200,000 people um and about 9% of those 2.3 million people are are in private prisons but like we mentioned we anticipate private prisons to grow um on the current trajectory we're on mm-hmm. I would like to point out, though, um, although that is a staggering and like crazy number, um, there are places in the world where I don't think everyone's accounted for. For instance, in China, there are regions um, in China where entire villages of people are basically forced into um, basically slave labor and you know, in, in imprisonment. And so um, although... This is an insane, staggering number. There are aspects in the world of, in terms of imprisonment in modern day. We have a point here um, underneath that says the removal effect of incarceration should not be confused with either the deterrent effect or the re- uh, rehabilitative effect. Can someone go in on that for me? Because I guess I'm not. Yeah, uh, I can. I, I added that. Um. So okay. So when I when I was getting really nerdy and getting into the uh kind of nitty gritty of the terms of prisoning basically and studying whether or not whether or not going to prison uh is a deterrent um or if it actually makes you more likely to come back into a prison at all these were the different things that came up so so um the deterrent effect is the idea that um a prison basically deters you how much it deters you from a life of crime which is what i think most people expect from prison it's supposed to be kind of that go stay here for a while think about what you did uh you know maybe learn have an education learn learn your lesson and then you come out like that's sort of like the, right. the hope or whatever yeah basically i'm mean, just I'll read it off the page a uh, turn effect refers to the crime preventative effect on the general public um, of the threat of punishment which is communicated by the official policy on the use of incarceration as a penal sanction. Um, so yeah, so basically, if you're judging the success of the prison system, one of the things you would look at is how much money are we saving by putting someone in a prison versus how much money we're spending does it deter them. And so, and then the rehabilitative effect refers to the effect on the post-prison criminality of the prison experience, including therapeutic treatment while in prison. So I think it's supposed to be like the, whether it, whether it has sort of a, a, a negative, neutral, or positive effect on the person who goes to jail. Okay. Because obviously there is a, you know, there are a lot of good reasons to send somebody to jail, not just to lock away the key and forget about them. It's supposed to actually you know, bring, be able to make them a good standing member of society and bring them back in. And a mm-hmm. lot of times we forget about that aspect of it. Right. 100%. This other, the other quote that I put here from that same article, this is from scholarly commons. It's since imprisonment restrains inmates from committing crimes during the period of incarceration, the removal effect may be either positive or zero, depending on whether the inmate would have committed a criminal offense, um, but for his imprisonment. So the other deterrent of prisons is or the other benefit of prisons is that if they would have committed more crimes, it stops them at least during mm-hmm. the time period that they're that they're in jail. So that would be an argument to have longer periods um, of people serving to kind of keep them off the streets. But if you actually believe you can make them better, then then that could also be a negative to them. Do you guys feel like we you got a quick little history of prisons and how we got here yeah why don't we go into uh i guess a little bit more specifically on private prisons and i guess why did they happen (laughs) like why are they here 
That's a really good question, Dalen, and I'm going to tell you. So, all right, how and why did private prisons come about? Just like with convict leasing after the Civil War, uh, that was, you know, I didn't, I don't know if I mentioned this before, that was the government contracting that out as well. Um, in the 1980s, the government turned to contractors and business owners to house prisoners and provide relief. Because remember that that uh, incarceration rate went way up and they did not know what to do with all these prisoners. Um, they also expanded the prison system in general, just due to all these, these new prisoners, um, like we said, because of those policy changes mm -hmm. and that large number of mentally ill citizens who should have been in a hospital, but they had to go to prisons instead, which is just heartbreaking. It really is. Um, we should all be pretty angry about that, in my opinion. Um, so private prisons, they can either be taken over by a contracted business or they can build their own. So when you, when you say that it's it's a, a prison that's already a prison that's government run and then a private company can take it over. Yeah. So okay. it's a building that exists and the government says, look, we can't we can't do this anymore. We don't have the resources. They hire someone, bring them in and they start taking it over. Gotcha. They can also just build it from the ground up. Um, CCA is the leading contractor of prisons. Um, so. Private prisons, unlike public government-run prisons, are, if you haven't gotten already, they're for-profit institutions, which means that you, people make money off of them. Basically, the government contracts and funds these prisons to manage prisoners and the day-to-day -day operations of the prisons. Many of these contracts are based on the total number of inmates and the time served. So what that means is that if there's more inmates and a longer time served, that means more money from the government to house the said criminal. A public prisoner will often spend 50% less time in prison than a private prisoner. What do you guys think about that? Because to me, that says that there's an incentive to keep someone in a private prison longer. Yeah, I mean, it, it, they stay longer. It's more money. It's it's kind of a pretty simple correlation, you know? I think there's this, like, general, um, like, expectation that conservatives have for, like, like you know the bleeding heart liberal type or whatever that that they're just gonna like it's like this resolve revolving door right that they're just gonna send them right back on the streets mm -hmm. and after all this time it took them to get put into jail you know so i mean like i, I get that argument so somebody that's conservative probably is looking at that as like you know oh good well we keep them off the street a little bit longer or something like that but at the same time again it's it's not as if somebody is like a human like is is like looking at this and being like this person's actually dangerous. We need to make sure that they actually stay in here or whatever. Like, it's just this like system that is already put in place. It's like kind of mathematical, like cold system that just says, no, you don't get to, you know, uh, apply for parole or no, you know, this, this quota, whatever we have to meet. Therefore you don't get parole. It has nothing to do with like the crime itself. So I think it's what people exactly. have to understand. Exactly. Yes. Uh, private prisoners have far less access to, uh, parole committees and things like that, that public prisoners do. And I do want to throw in a note as well. Um, private prisons actually get to pick their prisoners. So if you're picking your prisoners, you're picking low level offenders, you know, not really, not mentally ill people. So that's, I find it additionally interesting that they're serving longer sentences when they're typically less violent criminals because that's really weird. It is. Wow. Very, well, it's, it's easier. Crazy. I mean, when you have basically low level, low level drug offenders or anything, it's, it's easier for them to manipulate it's easier for them to control it's um yeah. you know, it's easier for them to manage the system honestly i was gonna say it's so weird that a private prison would be able to like pick and choose certain right. criminals that they want um you know because that would definitely throw off any numbers you know as to 
you know, whether or not they are more violent or less violent or whether or not they're, you know, really saving the, the government money or if these were just kind of the, the less expensive people to house and they, so they would nat- naturally be saving money. Mm-hmm. We're, just, we're onto something there. Let's, let's get into that a little bit later. Uh, <laughs> all right. So public prisons due to their taxpayer contributions and are, they're required to publish data and information about the prison. Uh, this all has to be available to the public. Private prisons are not required to do so. I know this drives Dalen. Dalen is a transparency nut, yes. even more than Curtis and I. And I know this drives you insane, rightfully so. Yeah, I'm. I'm all about transparency. Um, I think just. I mean, obviously, depending on what it is, I think letting the people see what's going on and just having a clear understanding of things is the way to do it. And I don't understand how there isn't just full transparency in this because for people running the private prisons, the less they have to show the better. Well, it's yeah. annoying too. you know, the, like the whole reason that they aren't made to, to be more transparent. These private institutions is because they're private businesses. And yeah. yet like a huge portion of their money comes from taxpayers, you know? So that's, that's like the weirdest mix of logic there. Like, you know, why do you get to, to have your private money if you're using, our tax money to, to, to keep afloat. Mm-hmm. Prisons have a massive impact on our society. Mm-hmm. People, when they go through the prison system, I mean, that can make or break, you know, how a society functions. And these people are responsible for something very, very important. And so as citizens, you would think that we'd have the right to see what's kind of going on with a an organization that has such a large influence on how our society runs. And what's basically their argument against being more transparent? Like, if they're doing everything the right way, what do they really have to hide? Or, and what, what, what's the reason they give? There's not really a reason other than the fact that they don't have to. I mean, the, the ultimate reason, I, 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 you know, this is me just speculating, but I mean, the ultimate reason has to be they don't have to show where the money goes. I mean, that, that, that's kind of the core right. of it. I mean, that's probably the real reason, but what's the public reason they give? You know, like, they, like don't. The only thing that I read that made, I don't know, it didn't really make sense to me, but I, I guess it's a reason. And this might be something that somebody in the audience that's conservative might connect to more was that they said that, you know, more like sort of red tape would make things more expensive. And right. Kind of, kind of like by their logic, turn them into the public institution. I <laughs> so think they couldn't compete. Like that was the argument, I think. Th- so there's a law that's been going through Congress and it's been reintroduced and reintroduced a bunch of times and uh, it's called the oh, where is it at sorry um the private prison information act and it's basically it, it's it, it's a law that or a it's a bill that would require private prisons to be uh, or private prison records to be recognized as federal records under the freedom of information act to make private prison records completely transparent but since 2005 <laughs> CoreCivic has been lobbying against this bill to make it not happen because they do not want people to see what they're actually doing. Why do they want to be the bad guys? Like, I don't, I don't get it. You know, like, like, like I'm trying so hard (laughs) to see, to, to, to believe them when they say that, that, you know, that, that, letting people out and, and giving them GEDs aligns fully with their business model by mm-hmm. helping them deliver for their government partners, their shareholders and the communities w- that they live and work in. That's an exact quote from core civics website. I want to believe that they want to do this, but at the same time they are doing everything they can to stop anyone from seeing 
the inner workings of this and i'm sorry i don't trust you <laughs> well and here's here's what so they've um since two so as of 2014 um they had spent seven million dollars lobbying against the bill since 2005 and their their argument was that it sets a dangerous precedent um applying public record law to private companies which i agree with that is that is a dangerous precedent that could be played with uh you're taking taxpayer dollars yes and yeah. that's that's why in this case I think it's it's fair to make it public record, but here's their the uh, spokesperson uh, Steve Owen, and I don't know if they're with CoreCivic anymore. Um, in an email, Steve Owen said the bill was unnecessary. Uh, the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Prisons and the Department of Homeland Security already have in place explicit procedures for making applicable information available to the public. The result could be a breakdown in the now collaborative process between private sector contractors and the federal government. And then he goes on to say in another quote, basically, it would create more regulation and more red tape and it would cost more money. (laughs) All right. I just have two more bullet points here and then we'll move on. Um, And these are important, I think, just for our context. So states with the highest private prison populations, none of this really surprised me except for one. Um, Texas, Florida, Montana, New Mexico, Tennessee, Oklahoma, and surprisingly Hawaii. That one surprised me. I expected it to be. Wow. That's really interesting, actually. Yeah. Um, and I didn't expect Montana at all, but I think it's per capita to their population. Right. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Montana's Um, like 29%. It's crazy. Wow. Jeez. And Texas is up there too. It's Mm -hmm. very high. Uh, just and just one thing to note as well: not all states do use a private prison system. So by 2016, Arkansas, Kentucky, Maine, Michigan, Nevada, North Dakota, and Wisconsin eliminated private prisons due to safety and cost concerns. So they they ultimately decided, look, this isn't saving us as much money as we thought we we could be saving, and there's some safety issues here. So they did away with it. That's um, red states and blue states. I'm That's very really surprised by North Dakota, and Kentucky. That one surprised me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that which which lets me think, you know, we'll talk about it again later, like we like we've said a couple times, but that leads me to believe that they, there were some serious issues, you know, if these states right. did away with that. Um, one and another. Lastly, I, it's important for me to mention this: the majority of immigration cases are held in private prisons, and they often contract with ICE. I, I think it's important to mention this, particularly in a time when we're seeing mass deportations and the detaining centers that are poorly managed. Upwards of 20% of ICE contracts are privatized. Which um, I, I didn't I, realize. I thought I thought these, you know, we see these pictures of uh, all these detained immigrants in cages and whatnot. I guess I thought those were government-run facilities, but not all of them. So I did, I you know, I watched an interview on PBS um and one of the he is the president of one of these private prison systems he said something along the lines of you know we don't contract with just minors or like just adults or something they only do families i'm not sure if that's true something maybe we could look into more but i do think we need to understand that a lot of these detention centers are are for-profit private centers which is a little upsetting to me Okay, so we've mentioned it a lot that um, the 1980s were kind of when privatization took off, and a lot of that was due to Reagan's war on drugs. And although the war, the quote-unquote war on drugs did start uh, under Woodrow Wilson and Nixon kind of coined the term, Reagan was the one who truly championed the war on drugs. And if you want a good idea of 
Reagan's war on drugs and what the uh, drug trafficking and the cartel, um, the impact it really had on the country, watch Narcos on Netflix. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, it, 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 the first season will blow your mind. It's, it's insane. Um, but basically, in 1982, uh, Ronald Reagan declared illicit drugs the greatest threat to national security um, and the safety of children in the United States. Um, it says uh, the war on drugs was a, a relatively small component of law enforcement efforts uh, up until Reagan. And uh, when he really started in uh, 81, um, he expanded the reach of, dr- of the drug war and was focusing on criminal punishment over treatment, um, which led to massive increase in incarceration for nonviolent drug offenses, um, raising it from... 50,000 in 1980 um, up into 1997, 400,000. Wow. Um, can, we, can we talk just for a quick second? Like, what are you guys' thoughts on the war on drugs? Like, gosh. was there any part of it that was successful? Was there was it just a complete failure? You know, I, okay, so I, I do think, okay, so in the 1980s, the, the mm-hmm. war on drugs was real, but I think it was, I think the term war on drugs is miscued. I think it, it more so should have been the war on cartels because those mm-hmm. were the people per, like perpetuating the crimes. And I think the war on drugs makes it seem like if you are a drug user, you are, the you enemy. deserve to be in prison. That yeah. That's kind of what that entails. And you have this broadcast of, um, Ronald Reagan and his wife was Nancy Reagan, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they do this broadcast and they touch the hearts of America, especially when Nancy talks. Just say no. Right. And everyone was like, wait, it's that easy? <laughs> and so it it, it, it did wow. it did a lot and it gave a lot of power to the EPA to really take on these people that um, because it shifted from marijuana to cocaine. That was the big thing. It was the big scary thing in America and it gave them a lot of power to take that on, but I think it allowed the power to be put into a lot of the wrong places. Again, like, Republicans are always small government, small government. And here it is, big government. <laughs> you know, I I don't get it. I like I I don't get that that, you know, those those two different thoughts at the same time. Like mm-hmm. how can you be for a law that imprisons people for lesser crimes for longer and also be for small i mean be for uh small government well and all that was because of uh in 1986 the anti-drug abuse act um it it allocated 1.7 billion dollars to the war on drugs and established mandatory minimum prison sentences and uh, this is insane so a notable feature of the mandatory minimums was a massive gap between the amounts of crack and powder cocaine that resulted in the same minimum sentences. So the same thing. Does the punishment fit the crime? Possession of five grams of crack led to an automatic five-year sentence, while it took possession of 500 grams of powder cocaine to trigger that same sentence. And so 80% of crack users at the time were African-American. And mandatory minimums led to an unequal increase of incarceration rates for nonviolent black drug offenders. Because guess what? It targeted the minority demographic, just like so many other laws did at the time. And I still do. I mean, should should 
nonviolent drug offenders even go to jail? Like, I mean, is it is it that extreme of a of a thing to say that if you're nonviolent and you you have something to do with the drugs, that maybe you should just completely skip the the prison system? Well, the problem is we don't we got we done we did away with any type of like institution that would like help you rehabilitate very well, mm-hmm. you know, or or go get access to help people. I feel like we just like don't know what to do with these people, so we just shove them in jail. Well, I mean, that was thanks really- to Eisenhower, right? Yeah, exactly. And also, one thing we should probably bring up is the fact that there was just a lawsuit over the opioid crisis, and what we you know mm. people were they were convicted over. Uh, these big pharmaceutical companies are having to pay restitution for the way that they pumped opioids into the community. And as many of us know, a lot of crack cocaine users or drug users are former prescription drug users. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just really messy. Like where really all the responsibility has to land on the individual that's that needs help. Right. Well, and the drug companies, they don't they don't go to jail. They, they pay money or whatever. Their corporation has to lose money. It's mm-hmm. like a write off or whatever. But like it's, a, it's I mean, sending locking somebody up and making them pay money is completely different. Ask any billionaire or millionaire if they would rather, you know, pay half of half of their fortune and stay out of jail or like keep their fortune and be in jail for 20 years. Like every one of them is going to sign on to write a check. But <laughs> chances are, as we saw with like Laura Laughlin, they're they're probably going to be let out in three months anyways. <laughs> so with that, with the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 and the minimum uh, mandatory minimum offense uh, sentences and all that, that led to mass incarceration, which the government just could not handle, which a group of people saw and they said, hey. We can profit on that. And that's when CCA was created, now known as Core Civic. And they came in promising. And it, it, I mean, honestly, it's ingenious. They saw a problem, they found a solution, and they built their business around it. Like, you, that's capitalism at its finest. So every libertarian in the audience right now is going, well, good. That's, you know, that's real good. You know, why? we don't need as many government institutions. You know, we need the private businesses. They'll do it better. And and there is some argument to that. Like, mm-hmm. I, like I was telling you, like, like, as we were talking about the notes, like, sometimes there are since there are situations where a private company comes in, they do it so much better yes. than the public could have ever done it. And like, and that's great. And like, so, so like, I'm like, I don't, I think I'm not sure about what you guys feel, but like, I'm not completely against private prisons. What I'm completely against though, is the fact that they are treated differently than public prisons yes. and, and yet somehow are held to like, you know, this higher like standard of like, that they're so much better you know, they're so much cheaper or whatever. And yet we really don't know. I think you and I are kind of on the same page. I don't know about Kara though. <laughs> I've mentioned it to you guys. I just have a really hard time swallowing the pill that any public service like that, that's so detrimental on society um, can be run for any amount of profit. It's Mm -hmm. like healthcare. I hate the idea of healthcare being for profit. I hate the idea of prisons being for profit. So that's, I just have a hard time. I understand that. I get that. I totally get that. Mm -hmm. And like when you, you know, when you look at the stock market, you look at these, at these, uh, these companies on the stock market and like they um you know they went down when obama was like you know deciding to to kind of go more public and then they went up you know by like more than any other company when trump won or whatever like that that should not be right because, and, and you know and they're lobbying or whatever with trump you know like like there is something kind of sick and depraved about 
about these companies that are sort of like, and these people who are investing in them, they're kind of like gambling on the misery of other people. Mm -hmm. So like, I do get that. I could even, I could even handle it better if it was something like, okay, the director gets paid this much money and this person gets paid this much. And that's how the contract works. But the problem for me is that it's, here's a chunk of money per, per prisoner, do what you want with it rather than like, we're going to pay you X amount of money. I, I don't like the fact that they can give themselves bonuses, give themselves like payouts. Mm -hmm. That's, that's where I just kind of can't be swayed i'll be honest with you it's guys. very dark money i mean it, i would feel weird about investing in that and i would mm -hmm. feel weird if i was part of a um you know a um i don't know what all the fun the, the you know say uh, an investment fund or whatever that that where that was part of the portfolio like that mm -hmm. that would that would disturb me i wouldn't want to make money from that from that kind of thing so yeah i get that so it, but you know i think my argument though was if there, like, if there is a need created, do we blame the companies who figured out a solution, or do we blame the politicians and the and the politics and the laws that led to that need? Like, like you know, like so, should we mm. sort of like like if if we're angry about this, should we you know attack the companies or should we attack the 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 reason that those companies exist? Right. Um, I want to audit them both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so I mean, for some people, business is business, and for CCA in the late '80s, going into the '90s, business was good. Mass incarceration was rampant, and the war on drugs was still going very strong, and that led to Bill Clinton's 1994 crime bill that ultimately, I think Curtis would argue, lost Hillary Clinton the election three times. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, I mean, I just I kept like okay. So I'm a I'm a Bernie Sanders uh, fan. I just I, I I like the man. I I like everything he says and the way he says it and the fact that it's not about him at all. It's always about the issues. He was one of the first um, politicians that I ever heard that specifically made like this system as part of something he wanted to do some changes about. And and the reason was because Hillary Clinton was wasn't was in power was at least uh, married to someone in power at the time it happened, uh, agreed with it, and then later on defended it when she was when she had her own power. Um, and it, it seems like it and it was brought up again um, during the debates uh, for the 2020 election. Um, the the uh, Joe Biden was was beat up all over for it because mm -hmm. at the time that this passed he basically would took all the credit for it but now that it's not as popular uh kamala harris and cory booker which are both black um you know basically condemned the, le the legislation and said that you know like this bill that you're so proud of like put a lot of people that look like me you know in jail and ruined our ruined their lives and so like like this this message that that is, is kind of splitting the democratic party a little bit over whether or not it was a good thing or bad thing. And I always try to be as informed as I can be, but I actually didn't look into this enough until we were researching this episode. So I really appreciate like that, you know, Kara came up with the idea for this because I, I might not have ever, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's more complicated than just was the law good, was the law bad. Um, Joe Biden and Bill Clinton have expressed both like pride in doing it and regret depending on when they were asked. Uh, you know, one of the things that um, Joe Biden said that I thought was really interesting was the law was good, but that the states 
took that and they kind of like mishandled it. So he kind of he kind of said that like it was good at the beginning, but but then states took it a little too far. That was an interesting scapegoat. Yeah, I, that was yeah. Well, and I and I mean, and it, it, it's kind of a convenient scapegoat, but in this case, like that might actually yeah. be somewhat true because because one of the things I was I was I, I just did this massive read about like basically every president from the beginning till now. It was just like, they just kind of gave a few points of every president. And one of the things about Bill Clinton that I never understood as a kid was that he was considered like a conservative Democrat. Like yes. that was his entire appeal. What, Cause it was after years of basically running very liberal Democrats and very like, uh, I guess probably more, more conservative uh, Republicans. Um, you know, and, and this was a, a good way to contrast um, Bush because it was something that a lot of Republicans could sort of stomach mm-hmm. um, because he was getting tough on crime or he was, and he was, um, you know, trying to get people back to work versus being on the welfare system. Um, and so that was like, like just enough to, for them to be able to stomach, but mm-hmm. also wasn't too far for the, for the Democrats. And they kind of liked being finally like known as, as as a party that also cared about this, even though they may not have done it the right way. Mm-hmm. So what what exactly was the 1994 crime bill like? What made it so intensely controversial even to this day? Um, because it's definitely riding on the coattails of Reagan's war on drugs. Yeah, it I think, was. I think people listening to you right now might be like, why are why are they talking about this? Like we're talking about private prisons, and the reason it's important for us to talk about this is to explain why we need to private prisons because yeah it was it was the need prisoners Mm -hmm. like i said it was was the the people who started cca they saw a problem found a solution and they created their private prison because of it i mean in a way this is this is kind of the classic complaint that conservatives have about about democrats is that is that they create the problem and they create the government solution you know to that problem like so i i mean i feel like this is sort of like the same thing except it's not just democrats doing it like it's you can blame everyone for this one because in the yeah. 90s basically crime was at an all-time high mm-hmm. people were, were you know were worried about that it was going to get even worse you know if you watch any movie from the 90s uh you know it's, it's 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 basically all talking about like how we're just kind of like in you know in this kind of hell <laughs> in the cities that like of this like uneasy uh, uneasiness and uh and that you know if you watch any futuristic movie made in the 90s it's always mm-hmm. like you know, crime is rampant and, you know, got Mad yeah. Max and all this stuff. Um, okay, so basically the, the crime bill, it was the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, uh, or the crime bill as it became known, earmarked billions of, of, of dollars in funding for states to build new prisons. Um, they It also gave them um, money to train and hire additional police. It expanded the federal death penalty, which was really popular at the time. It's actually a lot not as popular now. Um, but it was really popular at the time, and uh, and it instituted a, um, a federal three strikes and you're out life sentence mandate. Um, we need to definitely talk about that because yeah. three strikes is the ultimate rubber stamp crime. Basically, if 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 you I don't know if you live in a state where 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 you know this is more of a thing than others, but um, three strikes and you're out basically means that if you do three felonies um you can be put in prison for your life um you know so some people were were doing fairly non-violent offenses and 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 the third one would actually trigger like um lifetime imprisonment uh mm-hmm. sometimes without parole uh so things 
iron themselves out after a while. Some states actually did kind of go back on that a little bit mm -hmm. um, and made it so that like if it was nonviolent, like the third strike couldn't be couldn't trigger that or something right. like that. But it was this was after tons of lives were ruined. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, well, so it's kind of it's one of those things you, you can't like you can't mess up for a while. It, it, it affects real people. An interesting thing. And it goes with the man, the idea of mandatory sentences is it's the three strikes laws generally require judges and the, the keyword being require to sentence a person convicted of three or more felonies to a significantly longer sentence than would normally apply to each felony separately. Um, this kind of created the terms of career criminal and habitual offenders. Well, and the problem too is, you know, like drugs are an addiction. So, and it's also like something that you do more likely if you're in poverty. So it's not, so just making something a little worse or a lot worse is not necessarily going to stop you from doing it again. Like, like it, it really has very little effect on that. Like, you know, if you were able to have the good judgment not to do it in the first place, you know, you wouldn't have done it. <laughs> so, it, so it really like did this blanket effect on all these different types of crimes and, tr and tried to get tough on it or whatever. And it sounded good. And I know there were all these like political commercials where, you know, they were showing boxing gloves for some reason. And they were being like, I'm tough on crime. I'm, you know, all the, the like stupid metaphors they always do, but like, but it really just didn't do anything but make them look good and, and actually put people in, in prison more at the time though. And this is really important. Um, this was actually supported by Republicans and Democrats alike. Um, there were some detractors in both parties. Um, Democrats, including most of the Congressional Black Caucus, Republicans and substantial, substantial numbers of African-American pastors and mayors actually backed the legislation at the mm -hmm. time. So, so, you know, so one of the arguments against, um, say, Cory Booker, who brought it up, was that, you know, at the time this was not a controversial issue that it is today. Like they thought that this was kind of a easy thing to pass. And it kind of was, there wasn't really that much debate. Well, I mean, at the time, I mean, crime was the issue. And like, I, I don't think there were any other real quote unquote solutions to it. Were there? I mean, this was the one where everyone's like, all right, this is what's going to take care of it. Well, I mean, everyone was kind of going crazy thinking it was going to get worse, but you know, and to be fair, right around this time crime did start going down and has gone down every year since so like mm -hmm. some, something i like to remind people a lot when they think like the country is in a worse place it's ever been like that's partially true but if you're talking in terms of say violent crime or whatever it's like the safest it's been since like you know 50s or something like that like mm -hmm. we're actually in a relatively peaceful time even though it doesn't seem like it because you know we're watching a lot of a lot of news that that shows us the worst right well yeah you, it's like you say that but you know over the past 10 years you know how many mass shootings have we had you know yeah <laughs> like well, it, and it, well, it, it seems like one of those things where it's kind of like the argument of like driving a car versus flying in a plane like like right like flying in a plane safer unless you crash like and then it's much worse like you know it's much like everyone dies or whatever right so so i feel like it's kind of like like certain instances of mass shooting stuff like that is way up and it's terrible we need to deal with it but at the same time like that's that's an extreme situation that that just seems bigger because it it's right. so bad when it actually does happen. It's like it, instead of, you know, I mean to because it's just such a terrible like representation of like you know instead of, you know, 50 people being shot at a mass shooting, you know, imagine 
X amount of people being shot every single day kind of a thing. You know, imagine two people being shot every single day, which I'm sure is a statistic that actually does happen uh, to this day. But, you know, just kind of give the idea of that. Right. And um, uh, so so basically they, uh, you know, they, they kind of waffled. The Democrats kind of waffled on this a little mm-hmm. bit um, in the recent um, debates. Um kind of defending it kind of not depending on who they were talking to and what caught what happened was a lot of um especially black men actually stopped voting for the democrats and actually started voting for trump um because they felt like this was a um abandonment of the democratic party i think it goes back to this idea of democrats are for black issues when they need their vote but in between a lot of times they kind of forget about them and and it goes back to this to this question of whether or not this was actually good for the black community or if it wasn't. Which is perfectly fair question to ask. I mean, it seems like the only defense is that everybody was on board pretty much when it was passed. And then after whatever happened that made it not work, everyone kind of pretended like it wasn't their fault. So, you know, you have to take some responsibility for passing a law that, you know, increased in federal incarceration so we we've been talking a lot about you know the war on drugs and the laws that led to mass incarceration in the 80s and the 90s and um and there's something we were gonna talk about it more but i think we're gonna leave a big chunk of it for a later episode because i think we could do a whole episode on it by itself um but let's talk a little bit about the bail system yeah. Um, oh, so over time, bail has become an, an increasingly important factor in people being trapped in jail. Um, so on any given day, more than 400,000 people are in jail, even though they haven't actually yet been convicted of a crime. Um, you know, so and because our system is so slow now, even with all these rubber stamping um, laws, uh, people are just kind of stuck in the system, mm-hmm. unable to get a fair trial within a reasonable amount of time. Um, you know, and so that goes back to this idea of a cash bail system that if you're poor and you're if you're committing crimes, you're probably more likely to be poor. Um, you can't afford to secure release your release and then you can't afford to go basically get out and work and go to school and all the different things that that a healthy person does. So by the time you get out of the situation, say that you're innocent and you're proven so, but you spent two years waiting for your trial, mm-hmm. you know, your life is ruined by that point. You might as well have been convicted. Mm-hmm. And then it goes on to the, the whole trend that we've seen over the past, you know, 30 years of just the, the imbalance of demographic that is targeted by these laws and targeted by this mass incarceration. Yeah, I mean, it also goes back to this idea of of making money off of misery. You know, so there's all these companies that, like Aladdin Bail Bonds, is one of the biggest ones. Um, I I remember seeing them in my uh in, in my hometown. Actually, there was there was this area in our in my hometown in California, this Modesto, that um that we used to call Bail Bond Row because it was just neon signs for bail bond places mm. like. I think it, I forgot what it was like, like eight or nine of them or something in like Man. a four, like a four block period, you know, period. It was more than anything else that was there. And then in the middle of it was the courthouse and the jail. And I remember thinking like, like, wow, this is just like a little closed circuit system. You know, you just kind of get fed right into it. You don't have to go anywhere to go through the entire government system of being locked up. Was and, it, you know, so, what the hell? Wasn't Modesto like the bike theft capital of the country or something? 
Oh, my God. oh they wish they wish they were. Nobody rides bicycles. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they they do. They do. I did. Plenty of people did. Um, but uh, no, it was actually the car theft capital. Car the theft. World. Okay. I remember you yeah. telling me that, and I was like, oh, my God. We were really proud of that for a while. <laughs> George Lucas and car thefts. That's, that's what it was known for for the longest time. <laughs> okay. So we've been talking a lot about what created private prisons, what created mass incarceration, what created these crime bills that uh, have created the criminal justice system that we see today. So let's take a look at some pros and cons of private prisons because it goes back and forth and there's a lot of people that say yes and a lot of people that say no. So let's take a look at the first one, Kara, which is the potential for cost savings. Yep, let's dive right into that one because that is the one that you're going to hear the most about private prisons. People in favor of private prisons will tell you that they save money. Prisons are very expensive. The U.S. spends more than $80 billion that's billion with a B, annually to support a general population incarceration rate of about 1%. Uh, private prison systems have a greater flexibility to leverage pricing and efficient cost-saving measures. So for instance, if I'm running a private prison and I want to save some money on you know, the food that I'm serving and I see Costco has a deal on food, I can run down there and get that and save a couple of dollars here and there. Whereas we all know with a government organization, there's a lot of red tape. There's this committee that has to sign off and this and that. So private prisons really have an ability to kind of see a problem quickly and then just go ahead and get it fixed as as quickly and however they want. So that's that's the argument. And, you know, there's also an argument that they they bring economic benefit to a community, right? If there's a community with a private prison, they've got some new tax revenue for the city. There's new jobs for local workers. There's more money in the economy in general. All right. So that's the pro, right? But let's talk about... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, there's so much surrounding the just the the whole idea of money with private prisons yes. and especially with the cost saving. I, th- I think it's, it's kind of apparent, you know, you bring in a private prison, it's, it's going to supply jobs. I don't know economically what it's going to do for the community other than jobs. Um, I don't know if it really provides anything beyond that for a local community that a private prison is in, but I guess I don't know. Um, but I mean, the, it's, but it's public money, though. I mean, that's what's so aggravating about it. Like, like you know, okay, so you're you're totally against socialized everything. I okay, I don't agree with you, but I I get your your position. But then you're for this, like yeah. like it's still our money, and and if we don't know what they're doing with it, then they could be overcharging us. So like, what they're doing could cost half as much as what they're saying, but we wouldn't know it. Like, that's the whole reason for transparency. Like, well, why do you get away with it? Get your private. We look at cost savings, and a lot of people argue, kind of like what you just said, Curtis. It's an illusion. So in 2001, the Department of Justice did a study, and private prisons claimed that they decreased costs by uh, projected 20 percent. But wow. the DOJ found in 2001 in their study that the actual cost saving was only like 1%. Wow. 1%. Yeah, and 1%. That, that is not a study. That's just one study. And and like you said, Dalen, that was a Department of Justice study. This was arguably a rather unbiased study. Um, there was another study done in 2009 by researchers at the University of Utah. And they looked at eight different cost comparison studies. And they determined, quote, private pri- Prison privatization provides neither a clear advantage nor disadvantage compared to publicly managed prisons, and that cost savings from privatization are not guaranteed. I I, I guess I wonder if the okay so 
company X gets $5. They spend... The public prison uses all $5 for their functions. This The private prison only uses $4. They say, okay, so we saved that $1. Do they actually save that dollar? Or do they take that... Is it because they take that money and put it in their pocket? That's... It's like, no, you didn't save that dollar. You just took that dollar. Well, and Curtis, you said earlier why it's so frustrating about the transparency is like, how do we know that they're actually spending these dollars wisely? And here's like a little bit of a a look into this, which made me really mad when I read it. Um, So these these private prisons, you know, they charge the government a per diem for each prisoner. So, right, every single day they pay the prisons for the prisoner. Um, So in 1987, the revenue per prisoner a day was 32.17. So the prisons were, you know, making 32.17 a prisoner. Um, in 1997, the revenue was 42.72. So it increased 33%. That's the revenue, right? Let's look at the cost. The cost for a prisoner every day to these private prisons was about 28.18 in uh, in 1987. In 1997, it was only $30.51. So the cost went up only 8%, but the revenue went up 33%. So their revenue went from 17 million, about 17 million in 1987, to about 462 million in 1990. So Curtis, that's like a really fair question to ask because how on earth did your cost only increase by 8%, but your revenue went up by 33% and we're not supposed to be mad about that? Well, it's this really weird thing too, you know, because like if if you're pro-capitalism, which I am, you know, you want businesses that do well to make money because you want the good businesses to rise to the to the top and the bad businesses to go out of business. But the problem is like in this system, you're like if you're doing your best job, you're you're actually probably gonna be losing money because you're spending more money on, you know, all these things that matter. So like it's it's this really weird, like kind of capitalistic but also kind of like socialized system that that doesn't really benefit anyone except for the company itself right and and ultimately and i mentioned this before if you're in a business to make a profit you do that by cutting costs and if there's a human involved and humans who require access to rehabilitation and medical services and who might be you know re-entered into our society you're not likely to increase quality why are you going to increase the quality when it means taking money out of your pocket. I mean, if, you know, if, if this wasn't such a big business, then the two largest private prison systems probably wouldn't have each donated over $250,000 to the Trump campaign um, and seen their stock soar when he won. Right. There's, there's something to that. Let, let me, let me do a devil's advocate moment for a second. Uh-huh. Like, so, so one of the things I've heard from a lot of different people, including Democrats is that, um, you know, once a government program gets started it's really hard to like get them to shrink. I guess a good example might be a military, you know, like we haven't been in a war forever now. And yet every year the military budget goes up and up and up and up. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so, so while I see the point with private prisons, is there any like evidence or even reason that a public prison, you know, would, would, would uh, do any better at saving money or, 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 you know, or, eliminating their own need to exist or is it kind of this this act this accusation of like you know once a government program always a government program um does that hold water i think it's because with if i understand your question correctly the the public prisons are allocated x amount of money i i, I think once you're allocated that money so you know we say 
$10 a day for rehabilitation services, that's always going to be $10 a day because it was pre-allocated and these private prisons don't have to allocate any amount of money for anything. So if they can save money there, they're going to, they don't, they're not going to spend it all just because they have it. That makes sense. And to, I think Dalen was asking a second, you know, is that, is that money that's saved from the taxpayer? Or is that money that goes in the pocket of mm-hmm. the corporation? And probably the answer is both. Like, you know, some money um, does go to increase their profits, um, but other money actually, you know, might come off of um, what we're paying as taxpayers. And there's an argument that, that if we treat them with the same amount of scrutiny, if they both could have a way of existing together because that you know maybe the public system wasn't all that great when the pub when the private system started but now that the private system kind of shows what can be done with with a you know lower budget or something like that 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 public prisons actually might take that example run with it and and lower their costs as well to compete so this idea of competing with each other what well, i yeah. i i think there's some truth to i think we mentioned it earlier that one of CCA's big arguments for basically not having to regulate the same as public prisons is they avoid red tape. They avoid these regulations. And unless public prisons don't have to go through much red tape, I don't think they're ever going to be able to function at the same quote unquote cost savings as private prisons because it's, it's not built to be, it's not built to do that. Or if they do, we'll never know it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because transparency also shows the good parts too, you know? So Right, exactly. What would not aim for? Yeah. It, at private prisons, there's an argument um, that that they're better maintained. You know, many public prisons are operating at well over 100% of their capacity. So private prisons can alleviate this burden by transferring prisoners to facilities with more room. They can decrease the danger and burden that a crowded prison really becomes. Um there's with that argument is also the argument that, you know, a private prison tends to have better um, rates of criminals not coming back to jail. So there was a study in Arkansas that found that, mind you, remember, Arkansas doesn't do private prisons anymore, um, found out that 650 women released from their prison, only one in five recommitted the crime. But what do we know about that? That remember, they also can pick their prisoners. So most likely, yes, maybe their rates of returning to prison. What's that word, Dalen? Starts with the R. Recidivism. 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 While the recidivism is better at a private prison, that's most likely also because they're choosing low-level offenders who are unlikely to return to prison anyway. So I mean, basically, we we can't trust any of these studies. I mean, to be honest, like the the, good, the ones we agree with and the ones we don't agree with. I mean, because because it's so hard to compare these. You know, if you can, if any scientist would say that, you know, this is this is a um you know a, a kind of a a logical way to begin. Um, a study like you know you can, you don't have equal footing here if one can choose exactly who the, who comes in and the other one can't mm-hmm. well i had this source that i found and it was talking about basically how private prisons actually increase recidivism because it's a way for them to continue making money you think about it they make money off of incarcerating people so you as the owner of a private prison company you want once you release your inmates, you want them to recommit crimes so that you can make more money. And I found this uh, study, this PDF, and uh, you can see it in the notes. It's closer to the bottom. Um, but Curtis, you made a note on it and you said, 
you know, it, it would be worthwhile to find a source that doesn't already, you know, like basically want to prove that this is happening. Um, I think that goes to argue for a lot of things with private prisons where it's, it's hard to kind of find a foothold in what these studies show. Well, here's what I find really ironic, right? The the argument that we just talked about in in favor of private prisons is that they're mo- they're choosing low level offenders. They're they're safer, you know. They have a better better criminals, so to speak, if you want to put it that way. But actually, when we look at the quality and safety of private prisons, there's some really uh, jarring things that come up. Do you guys want to jump into that right now? Yeah, with the quality of prisons, private yeah. prisons. Yeah, it. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's go into that. Oh. Let's talk about it because if you're familiar with the private prison system, you hear this brought up a lot. Yeah, there's quality, there's safety concerns. Like we mentioned, these are for-profit systems. So to maintain this prison, they need to generate profit for shareholders. And to do that, a lot of one of the ways they do that is lowering staffing numbers and benefits that nonprofit prisons have. So this leads to safety concerns. Uh, when the Obama administration began to phase out these prisons, um, this was primarily because in this report, they found that there was so many safety issues in these for-profit facilities. There was a quote that came from that report from the Department of Justice offices uh, of the Inspector General that said, private prisons have more safety and security incidents per capita than comparable public institutions. Um, there was another quote from from Gary Gase, Jerry Gase. Um, He's a director of research um, that looks into private prisons and public prisons. And he said, you know, you can begin to squeeze money out of the system. Maybe you can squeeze half a percent out. Who knows? But it's not as if these systems are overfunded to begin with. And at some point you start to lose quality. And because quality is very difficult to measure in prisons, I'm just worried that you're getting to in a race to the bottom. We uh, talked again about recidivism a a few moments ago and Low quality in private prisons is another thing that leads to high recid- or higher recidivism rates, and a lot of it is because of um, violence that actually happens in prisons with uh, lower quality. Um, studies have shown that it leads to higher recidivism rates, but it's it's kind of a given. I mean, the first thing you do as a company, if you need to cut costs, you cut staff, and what happens with less staff in a prison? You know, it's it's hard, and you're when your prison's also at you know 100 percent capacity, obviously things are going to go awry, and quality is going to lower. It was yeah. interesting because the like a lot of what what I was able to find of research about this came from that study and from Obama's decision to start phasing out private prisons. Like there was a ton that just came out all at the same time. Uh, it was almost like America was unaware this was going on. And then all of a sudden they were aware. And then when Trump came into power, all of a sudden it be, kind of became a, a non-issue as much anymore. Like it got, mm-hmm. kind of got pushed out of the the limelight. And I think yeah. that's that's why a lot of people, I think, hate government. I think unfairly, I think they blame government when they do a study that comes out that doesn't make them look good, you know, that does, that or that challenges some of their beliefs. Um, but you know, but we actually, but even though we complain about that sometimes when it doesn't make our, our industries look good, it also is the reason that we have that standard of living that we have in this country. Uh, you know, things from like the way that we prepare food and things like that, like, like, um, the regulations that you like, you don't think about, you know, because it's helped your life and you don't even think that it ever could have been a different way, but it was in the past. Exactly. And, and there, you know, we're seeing that that lack of quality of care 
is it, it causes issues. Like at, at these at these private prisons, these correction officers are usually paid like upwards of twenty thousand le- dollars less a year and have less training. There's more violent assaults that happen. There's the Department of Justice said there's like an estimated forty nine percent more violent incidents with guards assaulting prisoners presumably because they have less training, you know, and less, wow. there's a lot of turnover there. And then 69% more inmate on inmate crime. That That's a lot. So there's obviously something happening when we're, you know, squeezing the purse strings a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if I, I imagine a lot of the guard on uh, inmate violence, I think we see it uh, represented in a lot of movies is that there's, I mean, one, be, once again, because of the lack of transparency, and two, you know, there's a lack of accountability to where you kind of get these people in there with these superiority complexes, and they can kind of get away with those things, unfortunately. Yeah, that's a really good point. It would be interesting to talk to somebody who has served time, especially if they were in both a public and a private prison, yeah. um, to kind of talk about, like, their firsthand account of, like, what what it was like you know how what what changed did something get better did something get worse uh it it's it's hard to know from the outside like yeah you know what they're dealing with and whether or not like the cost savings is really worth that um you know i like one question i wasn't able to find in my search that i was really wanting to know was you know, they probably don't have a choice as to whether they go to a private or public prison. But if they did have a choice, if you're convicted and you had a choice, what they would pick, because I see the pros and cons of both. Yeah, like, like, if, uh, you know, if you're, uh, if you go to a private prison, you know, maybe, maybe you're around less violent people. So you so you think that you'll have, you know, less run ins or something, although Mm -hmm. that that you just mentioned, um, directly, goes against contrast that um you know but but i generally the claim was that that you know they would be more likely to get out um you know uh uh, and not come back but the on the flip side of that they also said that they'd be more likely to serve more time if they were in private prison so i wonder like if you're a convict if you're like you know your fingers are crossed you're like i really want to go to a public place and serve less time i really want to go to a a private place and possibly be around less scary offenders Mm. you know so i don't know well, if, I think probably a lot of that has to do with the quality of care they're getting, right? And we, and a lot of the studies that we looked at found that the quality of care is also very subpar at private prisons. So if I'm a prisoner, I don't want to go somewhere where my quality of care is going to be less. I mean, it's so hard to know, though, because unless you actually have been there, like, you don't know. Yeah. No, you're so it's, right. they're, they're, And they're, I mean, there's no standardization. That's the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you there might be one private prison that's like the perfect example of how every prison should be. And there's another one that that is a, you know, it used to be a public prison. It's a hundred years older. You know, it's, it's dilapidated and they were supposed to pick fix it up, but they didn't or whatever. And that place is a hellhole. Like, like yeah. there's no... There's no way to, to to know that going in. So you're forced to go to something in which there's no standardization whatsoever. Um, yeah, if, if you or someone you know has been to a private prison or a public prison, or if you have just experience with the institutions, send us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com because we would like to hear from you uh, because this is definitely a perspective that we would like to hear more about. Can I, can I mention one more thing too yeah. before we move on any further? Um, it might be too late because it's kind of the thing we were talking about before, but, um, 
so let me throw that argument out there that I mentioned to you guys before. Like, so, so, you know, the idea of a private prison must be bad because they have to make a profit and the more profit they make the better. Okay. But the argument though, that, that doesn't completely fly with me with that one is the comparison to hospitals, which is also mm. a partially, you know, um, subsidized from the government institution and nobody's saying that you know just because they build more hospitals there has to be more sick people but at the same time you know there is some kind of like ratio that of beds that they have to have full in order to to you know uh build them in the first place so i mean are we just you know demonizing the businesses or you know or, or are they actually like filling those beds on purpose more or, or being somehow crueler or something like that. My, my thing with that argument is like, well, hospitals are kind of the same thing is like, you, you have to look at the goal of the institutions, you know, and you have to look at the regulations and the red tape they have to follow. Like I can, I can guarantee you that. And I, I shouldn't say I should guarantee you, but you know, I, I, I would, foresee that private prisons don't have to go through near as much red tape and near as many regulations as hospitals do. And you look at, you know, what they're doing. Hospitals are there for care. They're there to save people. They're there for the betterment of people. And I think when you ask the, probably the owner of a private prison, um, uh, that they, I guess, without a public face, they would probably say that they're there to take, criminals off the streets you know like they're they're not looking at the humanitarian side of things they're looking at the profit side of things and they're looking at the just incarceration side of things it's it's just completely different aspects of of life that's true i mean and you know one of the things that actually pushed me more towards kara's um viewpoint of this is they also lobby so that laws are stricter so that more people will be put in in their prisons <laughs> which mm -hmm. to me is kind of like this really weird conflict of interest you know i mean like like i think i think my analogy works with the hospitals so far as as that but then once you cross the threshold of like but wait a minute you know hospitals don't lobby to keep people sicker you know like like they they don't they don't oh, usually don't push toward that like you don't have to go to the hospital if you're not feeling well, but if you have to go to prison and the government is literally responsible for you, you know, under under the Constitution, under the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution, mm -hmm. uh, then there's like a different level of responsibility there as well. Like I can choose whether or not to go get care at the hospital versus my doctors versus urgent care. Mm -hmm. um, but if the government's going to stick me somewhere, then it's kind of the onus is on them to make sure that they've crossed all their, you know, T's and dotted their I's. This is That's something I didn't even think about looking up, actually, is the idea of the Hippocratic Oath. You know, doctors and I guess do nurses take a Hippocratic Oath? I don't know. Yeah, they do. They do. But so, you know, medical workers, they take the Hippocratic Oath to, I mean, fix people, heal people, whatever, not do harm. To do people no harm is a big thing. Right. And I don't know. I... I I, and once again, if you're a listener, let us know. I don't know if public uh, detention officers, uh, prison workers, whatever, uh, if they take any form 
of an oath. And if they do, I don't know if uh, private prison guards and workers are required to take a similar oath or not. I'm not sure the answer to that. But one thing I do know for sure is that I just mentioned the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. But also, there was a Supreme Court case that held that the government has a legal obligation to provide medical and health care to individuals that it incarcerates. It also calls for safe and sanitary conditions. So there, I'm not sure about an oath, but there is a Supreme Court decision that says the government is 100% responsible for providing you know, good conditions, health care, things like that. To me, that's kind of like an oath. Mm-hmm. Via does the Supreme Court, does that extend to private prisons? I mean, I, I know, like, like morale, like morally, of course it does. But like, has anyone ever challenged that, like, because they're in a private institution, now the government kind of like off the hook or whatever for Ooh. doing that? I I didn't see that. I think it oh. holds mostly because it has to do with any form of incarceration um, across the U.S., like whether it's private or or public, but. Um, I, mean, I would hope and, so, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> and, I'm like, I'm like, oh, I really hope I'm right about that, or that we've got some other issues. And Gosh. I think I answered my, I think I answered. So I remember having a conversation with somebody, um, and I can't remember who it was, but they worked at a, uh, a jail in Montana. I can't remember what it was, but, and I, this is my to the, a moment ago, I was talking about uh, taking like an oath of sorts, and I don't know if it's an oath, but there's there, they mentioned that there was like a level of accountability for like basically like use of force and like your practices that you take as a guard. Um, and I, I, I think it comes back to, I don't think private prison guards and private prison workers are held to the same accountability as those in terms of like their use of force and their practices and whatnot. Um, but I, I, I wanna, that would be, I just looked it up and I'm, I was totally wrong. So nurses and other healthcare professionals don't take the Hippocratic oath, though they do make similarly aligned promises okay. as part of their graduation ceremonies. I bet, you know, I, I bet the answer to your question about the prison guards is no, they don't take anything like an oath. They probably don't hold up their hand. They probably aren't really made to do that, but you know, it's not an oath, but at the same time to keep their job, there's probably a, you know, certain list of standards that they have to adhere to just like any job, whether no matter what you worked in. And I, and I wonder with private prisons, how much they're absolutely held to those standards at all times. You know, I think, I wonder if that really plays into question the, the amount of, or the quality of the private prisons compared to public prisons. Well, since we're kind of talking about, you know, that, that quality of care, do you guys want to kind of jump into what we found about the quality of care for, for prisoners in private prisons? Yeah. yeah. Let's do it. Cool. So p- public prisons, I, we should, we should probably get it out there that not, not any of us just sitting here being like public prisons are so great. And like the buildings are so great. No, like they suffer from greatly dilapidated buildings and underfunding and misallocation of funds. Um, and, and there are some studies that show that private prisons actually have greater levels of physical conditions. There's a study, uh, the New Mexico study, if anyone wants to look into it more. Um, so this, you know, the quality of care is definitely a widespread issue at both public and private prisons. Um, however, healthcare access in particular at private prisons has been a, a large concern as and is documented in several government publications. Um, the Virginia Department of Corrections found that the privatization of inmate healthcare at Greensville Correctional Facility was deemed essentially a failure. Their document 
their documentation in general was poor. Medical staffing was consistently lacking. Contact contract requirements were not met. So that's a big one. So the government's hiring them for certain contract requirements and they weren't meeting them. Mm. And the medical costs exceeded appropriate amounts by over 50%. Um, actually, in regards to healthcare at private prisons, Alexander Soler, he's an executive director at, at the ACLU in Arizona. He said, it's a level of suffering that is unprecedented. The degree of suffering and the degree of harm to these patients is really the result of a system that is extremely, extremely broken. Um, and the ACLU, a, a, I'm sorry, the ACLU has actually launched dozens of lawsuits against private prisons, including one in Mississippi after a psychiatrist found that inmates dropped between 10 to 60 pounds as they were wow. severely underfed. Wow, and he yeah. called it barbaric. That was a lot, but I think it's important that we noted all of that. Gosh dang, if I lost 60 pounds, I would be ill. Like, I would be in rough shape. I think anybody losing 60 pounds in, like, a year or two is not is not supposed to really be healthy. Like, no. it's you're supposed to lose it in gradual. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, that's, that's forced anorexia. That you're, right. you're, you're pushing an eating disorder onto these individuals who have no choice. Right. Um, and there's there's health, there's, you know, we all know that there's severe health issues that come with any form of, of restricting your eating like that. Um, so I mean, yeah. one, of the, one of the points too, that I was making, I don't remember if I made it on here before we were talking was that, you know, like according to movies, uh, you know, public institutions in the past were pretty terrible themselves. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's lots of, lots of cases of that, you know, Alcatraz is a famous example, things like that were just really over the top places. Um, uh, you know, so public prisons may have gotten better over time and maybe even because, private prisons were competing with them. So there is some possibility that that did happen, but it doesn't mean that like, like you said, you know, that public prisons are these, are this great place versus, you know, we're not necessarily trying to just say private prisons, prisons are bad just because they're private. It's because of, you know, lack of transparency or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like <laughs> I think that's a, a very good point is we're not, we're not saying that public prisons are wonderful, like oasis for criminals to go to. Um, but I, the fact that privatization of prisons is, I think, a rightful debate. I read this this big study, and in 2015, there were hundreds of nurses at private prisons that threatened to go on strike if the company refused to adequately staff their their team, citing HIPAA concerns. So these these nurses were they were very frustrated. They said that they were experiencing unsafe patient caseloads. They they were having up to like 23 patients to one nurse, as opposed to the average of like five to one in a regular shift. Um, they were saying they couldn't provide this care. They were concerned. And these nurses were like, look, we're not going to go down for this negligence and this death because, you know, you're not giving us the resources to perform our job. They they basically were begging for not only more space to conduct, you know, the, the intakes that they're doing with patients, but more nurses. Um, and again, this really comes down to the fact that there is an incentive to cut costs as much as possible. So that's going to have an impact on your staff and your quality of care. I mean, and, you know, libertarians should get that argument. You know, they're all about this idea of incentive and the incentive is there to cut costs. And that, and because humans are extremely fallible, that's going to always have instances where they're cutting costs to the point so much that they're actually making it a cruel punishment. Right. If your staff is begging for help and they're nervous that they're going to be held negligent, that's concerning to me.
And, you know, I think there's a fundamental, like, misunderstanding by a lot of people of what the exact purpose of a prison should be. And that's what we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier. But, you know, but that's important. Like, you know, when you go to the websites of both the Department of Justice and of, um, you know, the private prisons um, like uh, CoreCivic, you know, they, they both on the surface seem like they're trying to do a good thing they're trying mm-hmm. you know they, they don't see themselves as the villains um you know which i don't i think nothing like this gets started because people are trying to be evil i think people are trying to be good in a lot of ways it's just whether or not we're actually meeting those um quality standards is is the question and if not you know like it doesn't have to be a uh you know this this terrible thing that you know we're we're like we're, you know, we're pointing at you and yelling, you know, that you're a terrible person or whatever. It just means like, you know, we, we can do better than this. Yeah. Um, actually, Bob, so I looked in this too, Curtis, because I think we all were kind of stumped on this when we first brought up the question of, well, what's the point of a, of a prison? Bob Cameron, he's a criminologist and he, he argues that prisons, and a lot of people agree with him, should have five goals, retribution, incapacitation, deterrence, restoration and rehabilitation um he said all that mean yeah so retribution obviously you're there to pay back what okay um incapacitation you can't go anywhere your freedom is stripped your deterrence is supposed to be that you don't want to do it again restoration is i think in a way your penance as well um i did my time i'm good to go gotcha gotcha and i'm rehabilitated but unfortunately he he thinks that um this is a quote from him americans want their prisoners punished first and rehabilitated second um right so in that order yeah exactly (laughs) that's an incredible quote it's a great quote because it's not untrue and um i i did some research as well on what a rehabilitative prison system looks like and i think we'll probably close out with that but but yeah it's it's a great quote well and and you know i mean since we're talking about it the the mission statement from the uh, federal bureau of prisons um which uh was created in may 14 1930 um signed into law by herbert hoover which was a big small government um president if if you remember your history mm-hmm. um uh, which I, I always think it's just a super ironic there. Um, the, he said the, the law said the mission of the BOP is to protect society by confining offenders in, the, in these controlled environments of prisons and community-based facilities that are safe, humane, cost-efficient, and appropriately secure, and, and that provide work and other self-improvement opportunities to assist offenders in becoming law-abiding citizens. So exactly what you just said. Like, I mean, I mean, that that sounds exactly like like their goal. And that's that's the government's. And then when you go over to Core Civic, which is formerly the CCA, they have the they have this wonderful website that that like I don't know how much you guys clicked on it or whatever, but their website makes their prisons look amazing. Like it looks kind of like <laughs> like they're, everyone's going to college. Like, like they, you know, I mean, they brag about that. They graduate like 12000 people or something like that. in like a course of, I don't know, 10 years or something like that. And uh, and their mission statement was uh, under core civic safety, we operate safe facilities that provide education and effective reentry programming to help individuals make positive changes so they can return the, to the community successfully. Um, so, I mean, basically that does, that sounds like a mission statement of a college. Like, I mean, it really does. It, it, it's, uh, it seems like, like, uh, like in their mind, they're doing um, 
they're, they're, they're doing important work and, and, you know, they might be, um, but we need to know exactly more about how you're mm -hmm. doing it. Even if you are, you know, graduating 12,000 inmates with GEDs, um, which is what their claim was that there was a goal to do by the end of 2019. Um, you know, like that's great, but, but are, are we doing it at the cost of something else? And should those people right. be even in there to begin with? And ultimately, if this, if this system is so great as they're, as they're claiming it to be, then why did so many states and even the Department of Justice right. find that there was enough issues to warrant shutting them down in some cases because they were so concerning? That, right. that and warrant and more in them changing off. their name. Right, mm -hmm. exactly. So, I mean, they changed their name from CCA to Core Civic um, at the same time that that study came out in 2016, which which you know basically made them look terrible. Like, like their solution was let's change your name and our image, uh, and you can see on their website that that's exactly what they're trying to do. Well, it's it's funny. So it, this is their mission statement: is to basically take these people who are convicted criminals and let them back into society as these functional, educated, healthy human beings. And it's like, okay, that's a great mission. But like one, yeah, if you're cutting costs, if you're creating these environments that don't seem to be following that mission, how are we supposed to take that? The other quote that I thought was just really damning to, to this same company um, was they said, in front, this is from an article from the New Yorker. Um, they said, that the demand for our facilities and services could be adversely affected by the relaxation of enforcement efforts, leniency in conviction and sentencing practices, or through the decriminalize decriminalization of certain activities that are currently prescribed by our criminal laws. What that means is don't let people out for nonviolent crimes don't progress as the community wants you to progress because we need our beds filled. <laughs> right. Like, that's so irritating. They should have no say in that. Not one word. And the second that they weigh in on, on whether or not something should be illegal or should be, or should be decriminalized like marijuana, which you guys know, I'm a big proponent of, you know, making legal. Like once they weigh in on that, that is so inappropriate. And that to me, that 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 is a just vilification or it's justly vilified in that in that regard. Like they lose so much of my sympathies when they say things like that, like they're treating people and their lives and the law and the government as these pawns that are just sort of just going to meet their bottom line and they're complaining to their shareholders well if it weren't for all these progressing laws you know we might be doing better well screw your company you know it's like like we need to like we need to progress in this country you know so i mean it's just ah that i i i want to defend them but but they they have no say in that like i just want to shut that down right now <laughs> well but that's that's the thing with their business model is they do not they do not succeed off of societal progression they succeed off of society staying the same as it has on crime for the past 30 years that's right. what makes them their money their so website says that they want to but their actual like quotes say that they don't right and it, i mean I, I think we can all agree and it sounds like the majority of professionals and people who study this agree that the ultimate goal of a prison and the way that we are successful in imprisoning people is to rehabilitate them but it's, it, I feel like we've provided enough information tonight 
that could really argue that these private prisons are not out to rehabilitate people and that they do not have the capacity to do so in a way that benefits society. And and that is what really makes me believe at the end of the day, they shouldn't be able to make a profit off of this. Mm-hmm. Well, Curtis, you wrote here, um, you said, since most people repeat their crimes in return, is the entire industry a failure if rehabilita- rehabilitation is the goal? And my thought to that is, is rehabilitation the actual goal? For people like us, yes, but for core civic, I don't think rehabilitation's truly in mind. I mean, no, you, they can't make that argument if they're also giving money to the people who are strictest on crime and and you know don't want anything to change. Like rehabil- rehabilitation for most people is the reason that 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 they want people to go to prison, you know, mm-hmm. like most crimes, not all crimes, conservatives out there, most crimes are not these crazy, violent, life-destroying events. Yeah. They are a mistake or they are something that's stupid anyway, like marijuana. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, old Jimmy was trying to take a pound of weed through the airport. <laughs> yeah, or I mean, and, and you know, and even like if you're going to make the argument like, okay, you know, car theft, that's bad, that's bad. Don't do it. That's terrible. You should not be allowed to do do it. (laughs) You should go to jail for it. All good with that. But not, but it doesn't mean that that person is now, you know, shut out from the rest of their life, can never make a good decision again, can never learn their lesson. There are a thousand different reasons they could have done that, that, you know, that would at least give a, a little bit of leniency or should give a little bit of leniency to what they did, you know? So, so I don't know. It, I don't buy it. I don't buy that they really want to re- rehabilitate them. I mean, the government has more of an incentive to do that, though. I mean, maybe not necessarily the people who are whose job it is to to be in those prisons, but like the government as a whole wants to spend less money. And rather than just save five bucks on each prisoner, you could just stop sending people there to begin with and you'd save a ton more money. Obviously, we're dealing with a very misconstrued, a very misunderstood, and a very broken system, and it's been that way for a while. So a good question is, what are the alternatives? And I think when we look at alternatives, it is it is important to recognize that changes have been made in the industry, and it kind of started in roughly 2014 when the Obama administration started to phase out private prison contracts. And what I found in research is that the private prison system is actually very good at looking at the market and changing their model to fit that market. And so in the later 90s, the private prison system actually started to go down. They uh, Their stock value like plummeted. But after 9-11, all of a sudden things started to go on the up and up again because they started the mass incarceration of illegal immigrants and they shifted their model and they that's i think still like the largest amount of their uh uh incarcerated people is illegal immigrants right it's not the largest um but it 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 the contracts with ice make up 25% of its revenue right. so it's not okay. the largest but it is a huge huge windfall for it's them a very to, to house in large part and so after 9-11, that's what they put a lot of their focus on because that was the that's who were being incarcerated, the demographic. So in 2014, when the Obama administration started phasing out private prison contracts and started putting more money towards rehabilitative centers and whatnot, all of a sudden 
companies like Core Civic were like, hey, we can get into that. And they started buying these uh, uh, different programs. So yeah, in uh, 2014, the federal government granted CoreCivic a four-year, $1 billion no-bid contract to run a family detention center in Dilly, Texas, uh, which is a really nice name, Dilly, Texas. Dilly. Um, it's very Texas. Um, and uh, early in summer, it held about 2,000 people. With uh, The facility actually had a max capacity of 2,400. The thing is, CoreCivic gets paid in full no matter how many beds are full or empty speaking of uh, of how it doesn't compare to hospitals like hospitals don't get money no. for free, for empty beds do mm-hmm. they no. no but see i'm even okay this is the concept that i'm, I'm even like marginally okay with it's like you're gonna get paid either way this is how much money you're getting paid i, I just don't want like the incentive to fill up the beds there's not an incentive here for them yeah. to fill up the beds um, it, it really didn't last long uh, because as we've uh, talked uh, with uh, President Trump, uh, when his administration started in 2016, they started putting a lot more money into ICE, a lot more effort into the detainment of illegal immigrants. And with the progressiveness of the Obama administration kind of coming to a halt in terms of criminal justice, Core Civic and other uh, private prison companies kind of went back to the norm of uh, how they were running their businesses prior to 2014. So things kind of went back to the norm for what they were doing. Should a prison industry be also in this other business of of detaining um, illegal immigrants? I mean, it's I mean, not necessarily if is it right or wrong that they're there in the first place, but if they are there. Like, is that is that the right type of company to take this over? Well, I, I, I think a, a good point to make, um, it's not necessarily in support of it, but um, the private companies aren't the ones doing the detaining, per se. Um, the detaining is done by ICE and done by law enforcement, but the incarceration and the imprisonment is done by the private prison company. So... In the end, is it any different than incarcerating anybody else? It's just weird. Like, you guys want to detain them so badly, then, like, deal with it yourself. Like, I don't know. It's just if we are so hell-bent on detaining people who are, quote-unquote, here illegally, then, like, get, get yourself a facility. Like, why do we have to, like, contract this out? I don't know. What's the point of detaining an immigrant? Like, I mean, is... What what benefit do they think they're getting out of it? Is it just that they like they want to really like figure out who they are so that they come back like like they'll know that, that they've already been given a chance or something I, or like what what's really the problem? I really honestly have no idea. Like yeah, what? No either. When when they when they capture a bunch of illegal immigrants, why don't like what stops them from just like okay we're gonna fly you back or what you know we're gonna throw you in a bus and take you back. To... Isn't that the catch and release thing or something that I, yeah. I, I hear a lot about? Like, and so I, I guess I don't know what exactly the detainment is for. I, I mean, I know in some cases the the immigrants actually like basically declare that they that they need refuge, and so like they kind of like are in this weird limbo of like America can't exactly send them back, but they also like can't let them just go. So like I think it might be sort of waiting for their court dates or something, but there's like a whole other thing to get into about like how backwards and unfair the system is to Mm -hmm. 
to hear their you know their pleas of whether or not they actually are refugees and um, need asylum or not. So I've got this uh, PDF pulled up, and it's um, alternatives to incarceration in a nutshell, and it's uh, FAM F A M M, which I, I don't really know what F A M M stands for, but it's a it's a pretty uh, fantastic document. But they go into alternatives that are already in place, but I I really don't think they're emphasized within the criminal justice system. Um, Stands for Families Against Mandatory Minimums. Oh, there we go. Perfect. That's great. Um, So one is drug courts. And uh, drug courts are a special branch of courts created within already the already existing court system. um, And they uh, provide court-supervised drug treatment and community supervision to offenders with substance abuse problems. And all 50 states and D.C. have at least a few drug programs. But there isn't a drug court at the federal level. I think an issue that a lot of people argue is that it, it's it's something that drug courts you don't just automatically go to. Um, basically, a judge has to look at your case and then they can decide if you go to drug court. And so a lot of people argue that if you have a drug offense, you should automatically go to drug court because your case should be treated within those parameters rather than the same parameters as theft or, you know, violent crime or whatever it may be. Another one, another alternative is uh, something known as community corrections, also known as probation. Another one is halfway houses, um, which I know um, a lot of private prisons actually um, also operate and they're not always the best conditions and they um, can create a lot of uh, issues with recidivism as well um, due to just low quality, low uh, quality of care, and then also the cost for people to stay in halfway houses. Um, uh, home confinement, uh, electronic home monitoring, um, house arrest. Um, that's another one that I think a lot of people are wanting to put uh, more emphasis on. Um, and then fines and restitutions. Not everything needs jail time. Not everything needs prison time. You know, you can uh, come up with other means of uh, fines and restitution, uh, community service, which I honestly really like the idea of uh, community service. I think that can go a long ways. Um, sex offender treatment and civil commitment, um, mental health courts, which is actually really interesting. I never heard of that, um, but it says like drug courts, uh, they're specialized courts that place offenders suffering from mental illness mental disabilities, drug dependency, or serious personal disorders in a court-supervised, community-based mental health treatment program, um, which I think would go a long ways in helping mass incarceration. Um, There's restorative justice, which is a holistic sentencing process focused on repairing harm and bringing healing to all those who are impacted by crime, including the offender. Uh, Boot camp, which is, I mean, exactly what it sounds like, sending offenders to... I mean, basically a physical boot camp, um, but it also uh, provides counseling, um, educational classes, and it gives them opportunities to get their GEDs and further education. Um, and the last one they have listed on this PDF is public shaming. <laughs> public shaming is public humiliation. you. <laughs> so it's uh, it, it's rarely used, of course. Like I, I, I don't think I've ever seen it used, um, but I guess uh, there was a court order, for example... A court ordered a convicted male thief to stand outside of a post office for a total of 100 hours wearing a sign that said, I am a male thief. This is my punishment. There was actually, <laughs> I'm not sure about that one. Yeah. In Oregon, I think it was Oregon. That's where I'm from. Uh, there was this whole thing 
about the newspaper was running drunk driver mugshots every single week or something like that. And there was a big court case about it because it was like ruining these people's lives. Wow. Um, and, like, and there was also like the faces of meth. So every single week they would run their faces and their, their uh, mugshots as a form of uh, public punishment. And courts did not take very fondly to that. I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that like, I'm not sure about public shaming because like it shouldn't, a punishment shouldn't, like, well, I, I don't know. Like, it's, it, it shouldn't seem like a, an impractical joker prank. Like, like, and to <laughs> me, that like, just like, smells of that. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, that's something that like you. It kind. Of, it's. I don't know. I mean, I guess. I guess it depends on what it is. I guess, but it, it's. I think that could be pointed towards more higher end, like uh, white collar crimes. You know, like if you. If you stole a, if you're, you know, a high-end CEO and you stole a bunch of money from your company or something, like that's gonna change your life. But I don't know. Um, I, people like that, do they really have like, like a backbone anymore? Like, I mean, like just if they're able to do that much, like, and they got away with so much money and all this stuff, like, is wearing like a dunce cap basically gonna like do anything? Like, I don't probably know. not. <laughs> Uh, so last one. before we get into our the last part of the show, there is uh, one more thing I want to touch on in terms of alternatives. And this actually is kind of outside of the criminal criminal justice system. And I think a really strong way to reduce mass incarceration and reduce the negative impact that these private private prisons have is focusing on reformation outside of criminal justice in terms of mental health focusing on rehabilitation, focusing on drug programs, focusing on housing, focusing on things that create these environments of higher crime rates, of higher recidivism, and helping improve these communities that suffer from these high incarceration rates. And I think that will go a really long ways in reforming the criminal justice system outside of the criminal justice system. Yeah, I mean, I agree, you know, because I think a lot of these like more severe punishments that that come about is because like society is angry that they exist at all that they kind of like have to deal with them um so i feel like it's a sort of like a passive aggressive way that society deals with with its with people who do bad things you know right rather than really look at the the root issues and i think that like if we're if we're gonna move forward and we're gonna get these numbers down and we're gonna get people rehabilitated, we really have to like, as a country and as a world, but let's just say as a country, we have to turn down the volume on 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 this sort of like anger that we have for people existing and doing something we disagree with. Like, and and instead of just punishing them, really try to empathize and figure out a way to make it better versus just throwing them in a dark cell and forgetting that they exist. So Kara, what, what has worked and what should we strive to be? What, like, what do you think? Yeah. Well, I did a lot of research into this, particularly because most of this episode we've talked about, you know, a lot of the corruption that goes on in prisons. We've talked about how the quality of care isn't great. There's a lot of violence in prisons. I mean, we, we know what goes on in a prison. It's not a great place to be in America. Um, so when I looked into this, Norway popped up everywhere. Norway is considered to have the best prison system in the world. In Norway, the uh, incarceration rate is about 75 people for every 100,000. Compare that to 707 
people in the U.S. per 100,000. Um, and for those that do go to prison, only 20% return to jail, while the U.S. holds the highest recidivism rate at 76.6%. Wow. And, and shouldn't it be like, aren't most statistics like, isn't that usually backwards? Like, isn't that really bad? Because like, it, like if since Norway is so much smaller, like their people arrested per 100,000 should be larger, right? I mean, like, like unless they're doing something really right. Exactly. It seems pretty safe to say that they're doing something pretty right. So uh, Norway, their prison system is 100% based on rehabilitation. We've mentioned that word a lot, right? Uh, their prison system relies on a concept called restorative justice, which aims to repair the harm caused by the crime rather than punish people. So mm -hmm. basically, it focuses on how to make this person better. So if we take a look at Norway's, one of Norway's prisons called Halden Prison, if you went inside there, you might seriously think you just stepped into a college dorm. There are no bars on the windows. There are like nice, clean individual um, units or just double units. There's normal kitchens with sharp objects like knives and scissors. Uh, and the friendship between guards and prisoners, it's great. They believe in Norway that removing someone's freedom is punishment enough. That's essentially why you, what you're getting punished for in jail. And take your freedom away. Um, and they ultimately seek to return prisoners to society. And so they do that in the meantime, they keep them busy with woodworking, workshops, even recording studios. Um, there is a prison governor in Norway named Arne Wilson. He's also a clinical psychologist. And he said, in closed prisons, we keep them locked up for some years and then let them back out, not having any real responsibility for working or cooking. In the law, being sent to prison has nothing to do with putting you in a terrible prison to make you suffer. The punishment is that you lose your freedom. If we treat people like animals when they're in prison, they're likely to behave like animals. In Norway, we pay attention to you as human beings. Um, which is very different than how we view prisoners in America. And uh, in Norway, there's actually there's only a 21 year maximum for almost every single crime, aside wow. from like genocide is the only one that's that's out of that realm. And yeah. while, while they can add five additional years to the your prison sentence at the end of that initial term, it's extremely rare. Um, and this kind of quote that I want to close out my thoughts on this with is Halden's prison director, that prison in Norway, he said, every inmate in Norwegian prison is going back to society. Do we want people who are angry or people who are rehabilitated? Wow. Mic drop. <laughs> Norway, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is so powerful. And we've talked, you know, upwards of two hours tonight about all the issues in our prison systems. And I think it really boils down to that. When we release these people back to society, do we want angry people who have had a really, you know, terrible situation and a terrible experience? Or do we want people who are rehabilitated? And um, I choose rehabilitated. So, you know, it's it's really interesting because we, we look at that number of 76.6%. Um, the highest recidivism rate um, in the world for the U.S. And we get so many people that tote that America is the best country in the world. You know, it's where this, you know, the, the gleaming mansion on the top of the hill. But for a country that's supposed to be, you know, freedom, liberty, justice for all, 76.6% is a, a big number. It's massive. It's 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 alarming. Actually, is the word that I would use to describe it. I'm a big fan of that that um, book series and podcast, Freakonomics, um, and because they do a good job of of kind of showing both sides of an issue, and and like it was in that book that I first understood that the crime rate had gone down every year since the 90s, 
And but one of the things that they've never been able to answer with any of their studies um, is what made the crime go down? You know, I mean, is it that we just throw everyone in prison and just kind of forget about them? And that's, and so thus everyone that's left is the perfect, you know, human beings. I doubt it, but some people argue that. Is it that uh, more police are on the streets and so things just got safer? Is it that, you know, other societal things where, uh, you know, drugs became less in vogue, uh, people kind of, you know, they did, they did all their drugs and they kind of like moved on from their, you know, from with their lives. Like there's all these different reasons, but the thing that irritates me is, is uh, it's so hard to know when all these factors are going at the same time of what actually got the crime rate down and mm -hmm. yet why we are such an angrier society at the same time. Like if we were doing it the right way, shouldn't crime have gone down and our society got, more perfect you know so i mean it seems to me like whatever we're doing can't be the right the right thing and yet it's hard to prove because all these things were happening at the same time you know so when so when people say let's get the prison population down let's release prisoners let's get the prisoners back their vote which i'm for all of those things the argument you always hear is well, why do you think things are, are as good as they are because of all these, you know, these, these things that we have, but it just, it, it seems overly cruel. It seems counterintuitive to, uh, to make the case that that has actually been the reason that everything crime wise has, has gotten better since 1992. All right, y'all, we are, uh, cutting it very close on time. So, uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's bring it to a close. Uh, Kara, did you have any final thoughts before we uh, head into our outro? No, I think uh, I'm happy wrapping up on that on that last thought. All right, y'all. If you uh, this was a very dense episode with a lot of information, um, and as we said before, just due to the the lack of transparency that we see within the private prison system, it's it's really hard to get accurate statistics and see the facts completely factual as they are at times because it's just it's not easy to see um, but if you want to take a look at what we did find um, you can always take a look at our notes it's uh, on the website underneath the episode player uh, so take a look at that if you want to uh, see what we have down uh, if you have any questions or have any uh, comments about today's show you can send us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com you can follow us on the Facebook machine and Instagram where I don't post anything. Um, Curtis, Kara, do y'all have anything that you want to plug for today's episode? There's a, a fantastic movie called promising young woman. Oh, that, I want to see it yeah, this Saturday. Yeah. It's, it's a plus. Um, definitely what we need in this time. Um, extremely well made. And uh, it's, it's basically about rape culture. It's about uh, guys getting away with, um, with rape because they are important to a college and, uh, and, and basically the repercussions of what is left after somebody goes through something like that. Wow. And the it's actually a revenge tale um, kind of marketed as a horror movie. It's not really a horror movie. It's a lot more of like sort of a suspense drama, but it is excellent. Go Yay. see it. So excited to see it. All right, everybody, and that will do it for episode 18, for-profit or not-for-profit, private prisons in America. Make sure you join us for part two of this series because we have a special guest coming to join us for the second part, and it's going to be a very interesting sight into a first-hand experience within the private prison system. 
So stick around, and we will talk to y'all in the next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to Social Discord, part of the Podcast Without Borders Network. You can get a hold of us by sending us an email at pwbnetwork at gmail.com. You can also check out our website at podcastwithoutborders.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.